it was at that first Boston meeting where people said, A, don't do this for the money, but B, where the money comes from isn't the book sale. It's the other stuff. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to The Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci, and today I have with me Randy Patterson. And Randy is a psychologist and author who is living in Vancouver, BC. He's the founder of Change Waves Clinic, which is one of Vancouver's largest uh, private psychotherapy services. And he's the author of How to Be Miserable, 40 Strategies You Already Use. He also had a follow-up book, How to Be Miserable in Your 20s. And prior to those, uh, he's authored Private Practice Made Simple, Your Depression Map, and The Assertiveness Workbook. Randy blogs about psychology and mental health at YouTube's Psychology Salon channel. He has provided over 300 training seminars for mental health professionals on topics including communication skills, psychotherapy process, practice management, and the treatment of mood and anxiety disorders. But today, Randy is here to talk to us about authorship and the process that he went through in publishing his various books and as well as promoting them. And uh, what I especially enjoyed about my conversation with Randy was, uh, first of all, how entertaining these stories are and also how instructive. And you will hear nuggets uh, every step of the way from initially uh, pitching your book idea or even coming up with your book idea all the way through writing, production, titling a book, publication, and some of the challenges and uh, traps that you can accidentally fall into when you are promoting a book for the first time. So it is my hope, and I am sure also Randy's, that when you have listened to this episode, you will be that much more prepared for the process that you're getting into. So enjoy. So Randy, welcome to the Author's Corner. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Rob. Good to talk with you. And I'm so happy to have you here because I know that with the five books that you have authored, you've had some really interesting experiences from various stages of the process, as well as uh, different books. And so I guess I'd love to just start off by having you just share with our listeners a little bit about, I mean, they already know who you are from my intro, but just a little bit about how did you decide to write your first book? And how did that sort of the genesis of that occur to you? Well, I'm one of those, I guess, uncommon people who, maybe unimaginative people who never changed his mind about what he wanted to do. 
And uh, so I knew I wanted to be a psychologist from an early age, but I couldn't decide psychologist, writer, or forest ranger. I wasn't quite sure which of those I wanted to do. I wound up as a psychologist, but I'd always had in the back of my mind that I wanted to write books as well. And I found myself as the director of a program for people who had been hospitalized and then discharged from care for major depressive disorder. And this was a group therapy program designed to give people the self-management skills and so on that they needed to, to keep themselves healthy. And as part of that program, we realized, gosh, a lot of these people could really use assertiveness training. And so after the initial group program, I developed an assertiveness training program, eight sessions, two hours a session, led people through that. There was a manual for it and everything. Anyway, so I had this thing and I was thinking, you know, this could someday, who knows, make a book. And I found myself in Boston at the American Psychological Association convention. And one of the things they have every single time is a session on, so you want to write your self-help book or something, the publishing talk. It's an obligatory thing. (laughs) The staple of the conference. So I go to this thing and have the panel of people with their book doing their little show and tell with their book and talking about the process and so on. And there's a tall guy at the side, up right in the front row. And at the end, he stands up and he's a publisher. He's Patrick Fanning. And he's one of the co-founders of New Harbinger Publications, which is a publisher of psychology books. And he stands up and does his little spiel about NHP. And I'm sitting there. And of course, I've brought my training manual for the group therapy program from this assertiveness thing. And, you know, typical Canadian, right? I'm tempted, I'm just going to stand, I'm just going to sit way back here in the back because I'm too shy to actually go up and say, hey, I'm brilliant. You should publish my <laughs> book, right? I'm not going to do that. But the problem is if you write an assertiveness book, you're kind of obliged. You're not allowed. Right? <laughs> you're quietly, yeah. You're I'm glad you said it, Randy, because I was thinking it. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, you just can't. You can't. And I think authors are often feeling like, I really need to have that confidence before I can do it. And it's like everything else in life. You're not going to have the confidence until after you've done it. Waiting for confidence is always the wrong move. Right. (laughs) Anyway, so I go up to this guy and I'm feeling like this five-year-old in show and tell class, you know, like, (laughs) here's my little manual. And he looks at it, he flips through it, and he says, yeah, we don't actually have a book on assertiveness, and we've been wanting one. This is pretty much exactly the kind of thing we publish. Can I take this, and I'll get back to you within a day, and within two days, I had a contract. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Don't try this at home, children, but that's exactly (laughs) Not typical, but wow, that's awesome. Not typical at all. So that's where the first book Yeah, New Harbinger is a great press with the books they publish and, and the support that they give the authors over time, which is yeah. above and beyond. Yeah, they have a good backlist. That's one of the things yeah. you want to look for yeah. is do they maintain the backlist or do they release the book and try and get everything back from that first splash or do they keep it? Mm-hmm. NHB tends to keep it. Yeah, they're really good about that. Fantastic. And so when the book came out and you were promoting it, what were some of the challenges you faced at that time? Well, one of the ways of promoting it was with like radio interviews. 
And I'd never done any of this. I'd done some radio stuff before, some call-in shows and that kind of thing. I thought, okay, the book, this is going to be great. I'm going to be on there. You know, they're going to spend an hour with me or something like that. No, no, no. There's nothing more humiliating than doing book plugs on on the radio because you're between the weather and the traffic. That's right. right. That's really good. <laughs> and the the producer two things everyone's waiting for. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It's basically they just need to kill time before it's time to talk about the traffic again. <laughs> and the producer is like, we don't have time for the entire book. So just tell us the main point. Like, what's the main point of the book? And I'm like, oh my God, the assertiveness work. It's basically 200 pages of tips. What's the main one? <laughs> I have right. no idea what the central point of my book is. No clue. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's only, it took me months to realize, actually, there is a main point, and I didn't really spell it out very well in the book, but there is a main point. And the main point of assertiveness, go off to the races on, but the main point of assertiveness is that assertiveness is not about trying to control other people. Everybody thinks it is. It's about how do I get my son, my daughter, my spouse, my coworkers, my boss to do this or that. No, no, no. Assertiveness is all about controlling you. It's not mm-hmm. about controlling them at all. And that's the secret to assertiveness. And that obviously there's more to it than that. But that is the main point of the book. So one of the things I got out of that is I better darn well know with each of these books that come out, what is the central concept? Because that's all I'm going to have time to talk about when they do a radio thing. You know, I am so happy to hear you say this because this is like first step one when we're helping people shape a con- shape a book. It's like, what's the clear saleable concept, which is your way of saying, like, what's the point? And I was chuckling to myself a little bit because as wonderful as it was that you got the contract the way you did, that's why (laughs) you didn't know the main point because you didn't have to go through those steps. I didn't have to pitch. No. You didn't have to pitch. Exactly. But it still worked out great. But I mean, it's interesting. What I love about that story is it shows so clearly why those steps matter. I mean, Not to say you should turn down a book deal if somebody wants to give you one before you've taken that step. (laughs) Take the deal. But really, that is so amazing and that you were able to get to it and the interviews helped you to get to it. Yeah, yeah. That book came out. It did well and they stand by their list. And so it has sold well for 20 years. And I always thought, okay, I'm going to sort of peek out and then it's going to like go down to residual level and stay there. No, no, no. It stayed at the same level for 20 years. And they've been nagging me for the last five years. Second edition, second edition. (laughs) Well, I don't think I just did the page proofs last week. All right. So a second edition is coming. That's exciting. That's wonderful. And I think that assertiveness is one of those evergreen topics, right? I don't think we're going to run out of people who want to learn about assertiveness. (laughs) No, I've got this great book on the Y2K problem, but I think I might be too late on it. I think you're a little late for that. (laughs) Exactly. But assertiveness, yeah, no, it's a constant ongoing issue. Cool. So now was your second book, The How to Be Miserable? No, my second Ah. book... I thought, oh, the assertiveness book did pretty well. Second book's going to do even better because that program I was with was all about treating depression. And so I wanted to take the empirical literature on depression and make it really accessible. And so I came up with a book called Your Depression Map. Your Depression uh, Map. Self-guided self-care. And yeah, finding your way through depression. Mm -hmm. 
you know, panic disorder tends to be very, very, very similar from person to person to person. Depression is vastly different. Right. And the strategies that are going to be helpful for people are vastly different. So this thing presented a way of selecting the treatment strategies that are likely to be more helpful for you. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a great idea. I thought it was a good book. I still look at it and I think, this is a good book. If I do say so myself, didn't do nearly as good. Yeah. And was one one of the few they ultimately discontinued. Oh, and so it's gone. Yeah, (laughs) that was discouraging. So, so. however, one thing about that is, like, I do presentations about publishing your book, and I say, okay, so and I list the books and how they did, and so on. I say, okay, so which of these books was the most successful? And they always guess the other ones. I say, no, actually, it was the book that was discontinued and sold. Very few copies, well, less than 10,000 copies. No, actually, 15,000, something like that. And that was the book that actually, in a way, was the most successful because it enabled me to do workshops based on that book. Uh-huh. And that's where the reason to do this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And that's also such a great thing because too often people only look at book sales as like two book sales to get the return on investment for writing a book. And even if you have a publisher, you're still investing your time and your energy and maybe some money. And really though, how you use it is truly what determines how successful the book is. And so like using it as part of a course, terrific. Yeah. Did you buy a bunch of them so you can still teach the course? <laughs> Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. yeah they told me, no, oh, we're going to discontinue ourselves. Let me buy this stock. <laughs> but also, I mean, they have a great deal, which is if they discontinue a book, then the copyright seeds to the author. And yep. at this point, right. I could put it out as an ebook, which mm-hmm. is sort of on the back burner, but I could do that easily. Great, great. Yeah. All right. So, where do we go from the depression map? Downhill, as a matter of fact. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> then I've been doing workshops on how to run a private practice for years. Uh-huh. And so I thought, well, I've already got all, like, basically, I've got this day-long workshop on all of this and all these handouts and forms and stuff like that. Let's put it into a book and see if these people would be interested in publishing it. They were. And so I came up with a book called Private Practice Made Simple, mm-hmm. which is in print, doing well, but it's designed just for practitioners. It's much right. more of a niche topic. Yeah. And, and so and New Herbinger uh, mostly sells to professionals. Is there a They core? sell to professionals, which is good, but yeah. they're selling to professionals sort of as a pipeline to the public. Mm-hmm. And so right. they're books that are just for professionals on how to run your practice. I see. I see. Yeah. Good, but you're not going to sell a million copies that way. Gotcha. Right. Okay. That so that's, yeah. So that's gone well. And in fact, that also boosted my practice in doing private practice workshops and online courses. I have an online course on running a private practice and it's largely informed by that book. Yes. Perfect. Great use of that book. Yeah. You're doing everything right, Randy. <laughs> oh, I, oh I, I suspect I've made well, quite a do, number of mistakes. Well, yes, but overall, the big pillars are all things that we teach and recommend. So I just love you being this shining living example of how an author can succeed. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's regardless been, it's of book an, sales <laughs> and in addition to book sales. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even on that first workshop, you know, I've been to so many of these things, I can't really remember, but I think it was at that first Boston meeting 
where people said, A, don't do this for the money, but B, where the money comes from isn't the book sales. Exactly. Exactly. It's the other stuff. And so Mm -hmm. don't be thinking that the books, maybe if your name is JK Rowling or something, but apart from that, that's not where it's coming from. Exactly. And but still to this day, Randy, people still believe that that's the case. And that was 20 years ago you went to that conference, but I'm still having those conversations today, explaining that to people. Yeah. Yeah. As you know, there is a back door for Amazon that if you're an author, you can get into the back door and see how your book is doing basically hour by hour. You can also see where your author rank is because they have all of your books and you can see your author rank. And my author rank is some, I can't remember exactly. I think it's around 20,000. (laughs) <laughs> like not exactly J.K. Rowling. Pretty good on Amazon. But what it means. <laughs> There's like, like seven books million books at Amazon, books. so you're doing well. Aren't there like six Exactly. Million? I'm doing well. And I'm telling you, nobody's going to live on the royalties I'm getting. Right. <laughs> exactly. There are not that many authors that are living off of their royalties. Right. And I'll even plus what you're saying that if you do the math, like let's take JK Rowling and whatever she mm-hmm. got paid for those books, which it was I'm sure was more than we'll ever make on anything. But then yeah. think about what did she get paid for the movie licensing? What did she get paid for all the swag and all the toys and all the candy? Because I guarantee you it will be more than she was paid for those book sales. Yeah. Add it all up. And even J.K. Rowling isn't making it on the book sales, not compared to everything else, the bigger picture. So it's just a matter of scale as far as that goes, (laughs) but it's probably going to be around the same percentages. You see, I need somebody to make a blockbuster movie of private practice made simple. And that's where the real money will (laughs) I was thinking of the depression map. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. maybe. (laughs) We'll see. (laughs) But... Oh, who was that? I had a great joke in mind, but I couldn't remember the, was that Ingmar Bergman could make it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So where do we go next? <laughs> so private practice made simple. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear about that book unless so, you're writing a private practice. Anyway. We, so then what was your next book? Then... I was really thinking about strategies for doing therapy, and I'm interested in process in therapy. Like, how do we actually get people on board with the process of therapy? And there's an exercise that I've been using ever since that group therapy program. These people have been just out of hospital with depression. Most of them have been hospitalized several times. They've been through the ringer in the mental health care system. And I went into those groups thinking, gosh, if I say cognitive behavior therapy is so wonderful, it'll fix you right up. I'm going to get shot down for sure. So I need to do something slightly unexpected. And so I would go into these early therapy sessions and I would say, let's imagine for some bizarre reason that you wanted to feel worse. Maybe you could win 10 million bucks if you could make yourself feel worse next Thursday. Uh, (laughs) How could you accomplish that? I get some very wary looks on the part of these people. (laughs) Eventually, they would turn me up and say, oh, stay in bed all day, not eat, binge eat, do nothing but watch television, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. People would come up with all kinds of things. And then I could say, oh, when you wake up and you're already depressed, what do you feel like doing? Oh, uh, staying in bed all day. <laughs> right. 
It's like, ah, you ah, see, uh-huh. what's happening here is that negative mood states change a lot in your life. And one of the things they change is your motivation. Mm-hmm. And you are motivated to do precisely that, which will make the depression worse, which right. is typically true. It's not instinctive to do the right thing when you're depressed. It's instinctive to go home, retreat, and pull the covers mm-hmm. up and so on. And so a lot of getting better from depression is not about learning to trust your impulses. It's actually learning to distrust them. Right. Yes. Yes. And so that exercise I've been using ever since, like, what if you wanted to be unhappy? What if you wanted your life to be worse? And I was doing a a series of talks at the local public library once a month that I had a talk, the library to chat about some issue about psychology, how to manage stress, you know, that kind of thing. And I was stuck for a topic and I thought, oh, heck, I'm just going to do how to be miserable. I think I build it as how to be unhappy or something like that. I thought this will be great. This will be great. <laughs> so there's this huge room. Nobody is going to show up. We can just all go to the pub, right? Right. right. <laughs> Nobody's going to come to this. Stupid right. I won't even have to do and, anything. And I get, yeah, no, I'm off the hook, right? Right. And the organizer is there and she set out like 200 chairs in this room. And I thought, oh, <laughs> oh, this is, you're way too optimistic. And five minutes before the talk starts, she's out in the back throwing more chairs into the room because the place is packed. <laughs> and I think, this is weird. Why are people coming to a talk on how to be unhappy in your life? How to be it's amazing. And then I wound up doing those talks relentlessly, including in some places across the country. And then a publisher got in touch and said, hey, how about doing this? So I wrote it up as a book and it, it came out and it's called How to Be Miserable. I love it. It's based on that very topic, trying to come up with what are the different ways if we wanted to feel worse in our lives, how would we actually go about doing that? And I love the subtitle, 40 Strategies You Already Use. <laughs> You have no idea how difficult it was to come up with a subtitle because right? <laughs> the title's supposed to grab people, right? You want right. people to pay attention. If they ever go to a bookstore, if they have such a thing, you want right. to look at the title and go, oh, how to be miserable will kind of do that. But the subtitle has got to say, okay, straight talk here. What is this thing actually about? Yeah. Like, what are we benefit? actually doing? Yeah. What am I going to get? And, from yeah. Yeah. And I wanted to communicate two things. A, what is this silly sounding thing actually all about? And I wanted to communicate that it had a light tone. Mm-hmm. And I went through probably 60 subtitles. Oh, and eventually, it's one of those things where you wake up in the morning and your mind goes, ding, and it hands you something. Yeah. <laughs> where the heck did that come from? And we came up with 40 strategies you already use. And I thought, okay, that's it. Yeah, it's great. Because it gives that tone. It has a slight twist in it, which is the book is filled with those not hysterical, but moderately amusing twists. Right. But it also gives the concept, which is this is what you're already doing, how to discover how it is that you're already impairing your life, at least in part. We also have terrible things that happen to us that are outside our control. Partly it's us. Right. Right. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. It's so great. So, and I can see that the book has done well. 
but you had something happen that significantly impacted your sales. I, as I understand. Went back to Amazon. I go into the back door of Amazon and I, people are looking at their social media. They look at Reddit. They look at Twitter. Authors look at their sales figures or go to Amazon and figure out what they're right. not. I'm a hundred thousand on the bestseller list. Whatever. <laughs> you go into the back and you can actually see the graph day by day as to what's happening to your book sales. And every so often there'd be a blip up. Oprah online did something on the book, not giving me a little blip up, right? Uh -huh. In terms of sales, but not nearly what you would think. Anyway, so I'm going in every time I'm bored or needing to torture myself. And this thing is gradually you know, drifting downwards. And then all of a sudden, I go in and look at this thing, and it's the line on this graph is way up at the top again. It turns out for about an hour and a half, I was like 68 on the bestseller list for Amazon. Wow, like, all of Amazon. All of Amazon. Yes. Yeah, all right? right? Not self-help, right? Extremely brief. But nevertheless, it was there. And I thought, clearly something just happened. Like, what did Oprah talk about it on a shower? Like, what happened? Ellen talking about that? No, I couldn't figure it out. So I did a search on the book, and it turned out that there was a YouTube post. And I remembered that about six weeks before this, maybe a couple of months before, this YouTuber had gotten in touch with me and said, oh, like your book, thanks. Would it be okay if I did a YouTube post based on a subset, just a couple of the points in the book? And I'm like, yeah, whatever, fine. Just mention the book at least. And any press is good press kind of thing. And I forgot all about it. Well, it turns out that this guy had just posted it. I had no clue who this was. It was CGP Gray, who is one of the YouTubers with like more subscribers than anybody. He's got millions of YouTube subscribers. And he came out with this thing. And within a short period of time, this thing had millions of views. Wow. And it bumped up the sales of the book. But this was something, I mean, one of the things we hope for is like, let's find repeatable stuff, right? Right. This is just yeah. out of the blue. Yeah, that's so great. Yeah, the book sales, Deva smiled on you. <laughs> yeah, that Absolutely. is what an exciting thing. Yeah. Uh, that's wonderful. And so then you had a follow-up, a spinoff from there. Yeah. And it was partly based on this video response, because one of the things about it is that you can look at the comments below the video on YouTube. And I think the YouTube video is called Seven Ways to Maximize Misery, something like that at any rate. Yeah. I should know this, but anyway. I should, whatever. yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the comments, and it's disproportionately late teens, 20-somethings that are looking at YouTube videos. And the comments were all, like, I actually did a web post based on the comments alone, sort of a content analysis. And the majority of them were basically of the type of, this is my life. Why are you describing my life? This is exactly what I do. Wow. Uh, how, you know, are you spying on me? These <laughs> kinds of replies. You right. are describing exactly the way I am living my life. And it explains why I am not as happy as I could be. Wow. So based in part on that, New Harbinger said, hey, how about a follow-up? And I've got all kinds of ideas for follow-ups. But they said, how about something for young adults? And so up comes how to be miserable in your 20s, 40 strategies to fail at adulting. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Ooh, yeah. And it's similar format, of course. Uh-huh. And in a part, that's based on the clinical work that I've been doing. I do a lot of work, have done for many years, but it's really become a main focus with the population that is sort of unpleasantly called failure to launch. Mm. Uh, or in Japanese terms, hikikomori, or in British terms, NEAT, which stands for not in education, employment, or training. Basically, <laughs> young adult. They sort of aged out of adolescence, but they're still right, in mom's face. Yeah. And do you find yeah, that a lot of these behaviors that cause one to fail at adulting are the same or similar behaviors that cause one to be miserable at any age? I'm thinking about this and I'm thinking of this particular generation, right, has been raised with their face in their phone. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious, were there certain things about this particular group of 20s, 20-somethings that maybe you think was more present than in previous generations? I think so, in a way. I mean, in part, I think that that transition from being an overgrown kid to being an adult is a difficult one, probably, right. regardless of when you grow up. I think of it as a tight corner in life. It's a little hard to negotiate with hitting the guardrails or going through them. But I think this generation, it it is somewhat harder, partly having to do with being on the internet continuously. Mm -hmm. The Nielsen group, if you remember the Nielsen ratings, for Nielsen ratings for TV, they're still at it, right? Oh, yeah. And one of the things that they publish is the cross-platform report every quarter which is looking at how much time people are looking at phone and iPad and computer and television, basically how much screen time in total you have. Average American citizen, what they're finding is spending over 10 hours per day. A day? Oh, looking at screens. Well, if you count work, yeah. yeah. Interesting. If you count work, exactly. Sure. Uh, Although people who aren't working, it's about the same. Oh, yeah. Really accomplished. I say accomplished. Really dedicated gamers are spending 40 hours a week gaming. Sure. And when you think of the fact that we're in bed about eight hours a day, let's say, on average, 16 hours is all the waking time you've got. This is the majority of your waking hours. Yeah. Time that previously might have been spent developing social skills, Uh being out in the world and, and learning some things about how to cope with life. What universities are finding is that the university student counseling services are absolutely overwhelmed by young adults coming in. Oh, I failed an exam. They're devastated. They're really not coping very well with failure experiences or any of the challenges that previous generations seem to cope with somewhat better on average. Yeah. And it seems like what's been happening is that we have been very protective. Child raising is a matter of two tasks. Task number one is keep the kid alive. Yes. And task number two is prepare for your death. Yes. So that they'll be able to survive without you. And we've been doing really good at that first task, protecting our kids. Not as good, I think, at preparing them for independence. Yeah. And so a lot of people are reaching adulthood, just not being able to cook, not being able to tolerate failure experiences. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one phenomenon that was very popular, I remember when I was raising my kids, I don't know if it still is, they were born in the late 90s, but the everyone gets a trophy. Yeah. Right. And I remember my kids just like, they didn't value the trophies. You know? <laughs> they just like, 
For everybody gets one. Right, exactly. Nobody ever wins or loses. And yes, I mean, I think there were some things. And I mean, the other thing I remember too, because you and I probably grew up in an era where, you know, we were kind of free range children, right? Like, it was like, oh, neglect is so wonderful. Neglect, <laughs> so right? To have I know, like I'm thinking, like I would have gone to jail if I let my kids do things that that, my, that I was allowed to do. Exactly. I rode the I bus by myself when I was ten. You know, like to and from yeah. school, public bus. It was like going out to the park and it'd be like, hey, you know, be home by sunset. Yeah. Okay. Seven years old. You know? <laughs> yeah. Dinners at six. Be there. Right. <laughs> we don't have a tracker on you. We don't have a cell phone on you. We have no clue where you are. Right. I spent part of my youth playing in the storm drains under the local golf course. Yes, perfect. Highly you know? so. Yes, absolutely. Just crawl right in and hope for the best. <laughs> now, granted, we probably lost a few kids this way but wound up dealing with things on your own yeah, to yeah, a great extent. Yeah, and, so that, and I think it was a, sort of an assumption that kids are stupid. If they all get a trophy, they will all value it. It's like, no, it devalues it. And they're abundantly aware of that. There was a school that I'd heard of, I think it's locally, that would intervene in softball games. So they would stop it in like the seventh inning or something like that. So you never figured out who won. Yes, yes. They end the game before they let anyone win or lose. And the reality is that's wonderful if we're raising them for a world in which failure does not occur. But I'm not sure what planet that is. Elon Musk better, you know, get on it because we're preparing them for a planet that is not this one. Yeah. Most of adulthood involves failure after failure after failure. And you have one of the most valuable things you can do is learn to, um, to, learn to tolerate that. Yeah. You know, writing. No, we're... We're talking about writing here. You're going to write all kinds of stuff. It's not going to be published. Everybody's going to say, oh, yeah, that's very nice. Anyway, do you have a topic on that? Do you have this other thing? This is crap. Don't even pursue this idea. That's the nature of adulthood. Most jobs you apply for, you're not going to get. Most people you date are not going to want to date you. <laughs> or it's certainly not going to last. It'd be a lasting relationship. Most projects probably won't reach fruition. And that's just normal. If it's a disaster, you can't tolerate it. You best hide in your home. Yeah. So I think that's part of what's going on with young adults. That's a long discussion of that topic. But I think that's part of what's happening is we're not doing failure exposure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have to have I a think, I think when you have the experience of failure and you learn to deal with the feelings that come with failure, then you're more willing to try again. And I think that's the problem. If you're not prepared to deal with failure, then you hole up in mom's basement and hide and do more yeah. things to make yourself miserable, right? Versus, okay, what's the next thing? Or what can I try differently? Or yeah. how can I get there some other way? Well, and we're all, it's tempting to like be critical. Oh, the younger generation these days. We're all They're like, why do they have these stupid ideas? It's because we taught them. Yes. yes. Like, why do they have these stupid ideas? Because we're the ones who foisted these ideas on people. No. Right? Look in the I, mirror. Yeah. I think it's, uh, yeah. I'm going to pat myself on the back because we had a mantra at our house. Fail faster. Mm -hmm. Fail faster. Great. Yeah. Absolutely right. You know, one of my pet peeves in the psychology business is positive affirmations, which actually 
If you Google positive affirmations, you can get great lists of these things. Most of them are lies. Right. I have every talent I need to achieve everything I want. No, you don't. (laughs) It's not going to happen. Everybody loves me. I doubt it. (laughs) I don't know. Maybe some people have lives like this, but it's not mine. (laughs) So I have realistic affirmations. Mm. And uh, this could be another book. Wait, wait, give me an image. It, it might well. I, that's in the back. I like this a lot. Okay, I want to hear a few of your realistic affirmations. Most things don't work. Yes. <laughs> that's a life affirmation. Most things don't work. Another one would be everyone has a mixed, no, sorry, everyone is a mixed bag. Yes. <laughs> you, know, you think you're going to meet this perfect person who's flawless right, right. in every way? No, you're not. <laughs> right. I am attracted to my perfect life partner. You could do a juxtaposition, right? <laughs> yeah. Opposing pages. Why and the realistic one. <laughs> yeah. I thought that that would be a fun book to write. Very fun. I have a YouTube channel myself now, needless to say, having been inspired by Gray. Uh, <laughs> I don't have millions of subscribers. But every couple of weeks, I put up a new video. And I'm thinking that that'll be something for this year is, is to put up, like, do one on any, a variety of these. these oh, yeah. These are uh, great. Realistic affirmations. I love it. I love it. Failure is normal. Go with that. I think that's really terrific. All right. Well, this has been really fun, but there's one more thing I wanted to talk about before I let you go, because you also, one of the things you brought up before the interview was why bother writing, right? If your main gig is something else, why bother? So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, one answer can be that writing is interesting. I mean, I'm a great opponent of the idea of discovering your passion, right? Because I don't think passions are discovered. They're built. You create them. They're not hiding out, waiting for you to stumble across them. (laughs) But if writing is a thing for you, then absolutely. Why not indulge it? You could do jigsaw puzzles. You could do macrame. You could do writing. You know, fine. If it gets published, lovely. But maybe it's just the writing. A second reason, I think, is that writing forces you to structure your own thoughts. You're an expert in some area, presumably. And writing actually forces you to sift this through and organize the way that you're thinking. A third can be that maybe you get royalties sufficient to take yourself out to a fast food restaurant now and then. That <laughs> <laughs> was the more optimistic. I was going to say a, a fancy restaurant, maybe if you're yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always like setting the bar low. Right, maybe that makes fancy it fast food. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And indeed, that does happen. But also, it establishes you as somebody who's genuinely thought about the area. And I think people in different professions, like if you're an economist, I don't quite know how that might go. Maybe different people will hire you, that kind of thing. As a psychologist, one of the things that I've always liked doing long before I started publishing was doing workshops. I've I've trained thousands of therapists in the treatment of depression not full treatment training, but at two-day workshops, that kind of thing. I really enjoy that work. And publishing has enabled me to do much, much more of that. I've traveled to other countries to do 
training programs on treatment of depression and process and psychotherapy, that kind of thing. So that's been a large benefit as well. Wonderful. So I think there's lots of reasons. Yes, I agree with you. And I think it's always wonderful to hear. I think the more people hear authors talk about how they benefit from the experience, it can be really encouraging to people listening who are trying to navigate this whole thing because it can be very daunting at times, right? So thank you for sharing that. All right, I have one more question. This is my favorite question to ask at the end of every interview, which is, what is the question I didn't ask you that I should have or that you wanted to answer? (laughs) Oh, gosh. We talked about, have my books been translated? Yes, they have. Uh, That's not a very interesting one. How about, what are you doing today? Because right behind me is a bunch of bags and uh, suitcases and things like that, because I'm about to go on a writing retreat for a week. And for my next writing project, I'm going to be on an island in a cabin. So that's, oh. that's perhaps not the interesting response that you were after, no, but it's I sort of on my mind. Yeah. And when what a wonderful up, gift. Out of here. Yeah. What a wonderful gift to give to yourself and your process. Good for it's you. It's absolutely necessary for me. Because there's so many different things going on that I need to have that time to just dive into something and spend more than 20 minutes thinking about a topic. Mm. That's been really important is the process of writing and figuring out what your own writing process is. And for me, nothing is more productive than being alone somewhere with a bunch of food in the fridge and nothing very interesting going on. Really important. Unplugged, I presume. Pretty much I'll up. be as unplugged as I can be. Unfortunately, I've got this clinic, so I need to be able to right. be on top of things to some extent. But I'm very deliberately telling people I don't exist. Right. <laughs> Flip well, into I, another I, dimension, I, I do not exist. I think that's such a wonderful thing to share. And it does. It just gives another nugget to our listeners, right, of really respecting, like learning what your process is even takes Mm -hmm. some trial and error and some time. And then when you know what works best for you, really to honor that and step into it. And I just want to thank you for taking these last moments before you take off for your retreat. Thank you for spending them (laughs) here with us and here with me on the Author's Corner. Wonderful. Well, it's been a pleasure. Good to speak with you. You as well, Randy. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time. 